Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I'm going to be talking about the technology that went into the story of the development of industry and capitalism that I spoke about a couple hours ago. Now, when I first say that, I think that you might picture in your heads the obvious sort of technology, the railroads, the steamships, the telegraphs, the Bessemer process, all of these heavy industrial processes that are usually the stars of the show when we talk about technology in the Industrial Revolution. I, however, want to talk about technologies of a different kind, technologies of communication, because I think that these allow us to understand how some of these new kinds of political, social, and you know, uh, uh, capitalistic organizations actually develop. The key story is that as technologies of communication improve, the cost of sending information back and forth decreases, meaning that people are able to have organized uh, activity at a wider and wider geographic scope. And this is not just mail, but also things like uh, circular letters, uh, press books that allowed people to copy letters more effectively, mail routes that allowed people to predict when mail would come, stuff like that. This made organizations of a much bigger scale than ever before, and it led to people dealing uh, with one another anonymously, working at the same task with groups of people without knowing everybody there. And this allowed the creation of new ways of using information to sway uh, the uh, uh, direction of activity, not simply in government. This is often told as a story of revolutions in government in which experts step up and start to bring information to bear at public problems in new ways. But this is also the way that civil society organizations and private organizations start to manage their own activities. So this is great on one respect. It allows for more centralization, it allows for more power, and by generating statistics and information about stuff, it brings to light new problems. But it also has downsides. It gives an opportunity for moral failure because people become increasingly alienated on a day-to-day -day level from uh, the effects of their actions. We're very used now to working with things that we don't see. We're very used to understanding that uh, the company that we work for has other divisions that we don't visit, that the projects that we uh, actually are involved in um, become implemented in other places, or if we're the workers them themselves, that the decisions for what we do with working is made in by other people. This is a new thing, however, in the 19th century, and it opens up a space for rapaciousness. It opens up a space for people to bracket out their moral sense. So let's talk about how this happens in a bunch of different areas. I'm going to mention uh, this sort of process of technologies of communication in civil society uh, to do with class and politics, and then to deal with bureaucracy both in the private sphere and the public sphere. So let's talk about the civil society story first. Uh, this story is one of increasing scale. 
civil society organizations continue in the 19th century to uh, grow in variety and in power and in geographic reach. You go from having one or two particularly well-heeled national organizations like the National Anti-Slavery Movement to, by the middle of the 19th century, national organizations being the general model, not only for those civil society organizations that seek to influence policy, uh, like the temperance movement, but also for civil society organizations that seek just to have people have fun. We can see a great model in this, the United Services Clubs, which were clubs that were uh, meant for returning soldiers to be able to have a social space, and they became widely copied not only in uh, Britain, but also throughout the empire. In these new national organizations, you got a distinction between central offices where uh, things were actually discussed, decisions were made, ideas were had, and professionals employed, and branch offices where you got people uh, participating in these civil society organizations in a much more virtual way. In effect, you have a hierarchy of two different kinds of people. First, the professional clubman, the professional person whose job it was was to be the secretary of clubs or to be a bursar, uh, who got paid for their activity in civil society and would move from civil society organization to civil society organization. The other group of people were the members who would uh, pay money to join the clubs, who would read the magazines, maybe send in some letters, maybe even write an article or two, uh, but who would not actually be involved in the running of the club day to day. This is very different from the 18th century story where the actual everyday running of the club was the purview of most of the members, leading to uh, civil society organizations being organization-creating organizations. This is not the case in the 19th century. To make a periodization of this, we would start the story perhaps with the anti-slave trade organizations of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. These set the model for the national branch civil society organization. They uh, communicated with people through specially built newspapers. They asked for uh, monthly contributions from members in order to do particular things. They organized their members to write petitions so as to shift uh, the opinion of parliamentarians. Uh, they were run by professionals who uh, drove these organizations in the direction in which they wanted to. These uh, structures would be repeated over and over again, and again I'll say not merely in those civil society organizations that sought to change social behavior. We see them repeated in the uh, late 1820s in the reform associations that uh, would lead to the 1832 Reform Act. You see them after 1832 in both the Corn Law League and the Chartists. You see them again as political parties after the 1832 Reform Act use civil society organizations to register voters, to get public opinion mobilized, and uh, after, say, the 1860s with something like the Primrose League to actually get people to start to identify personally with the political parties as like a kind of raison d'etre. From this perspective, I see the rise of class as a effect of these new kinds of technology of managing large groups of people at a distance. So just to zoom out, there's a couple problems with class. Uh, the old idea was really simple and 
I wish it were true because it's so much easier to talk about. The old idea was the Marxist idea. Class happens because you have changes in socioeconomic relations, i.e. you get factories and people get pissed off. People get pissed off because they look at all the other people working in the factories and they say, look, we're the ones who are doing all the work and the capitalists are making all the money. Why don't we get all the money? However, that does not really obtain in practice. In practice, we get two waves of class language, the first in the late 1830s and the second after 1870s. The question is, why is there a lag? Why after 1840s do people not talk about class for like 20 or 30 years? And then the other question is, why in the first wave of class language in the 1830s did people not advocate for, say, destroying the factories like we'd expect them to? Why do they not advocate to change the market like we'd expect them to? Why do they advocate for political representation? It's really hard. It's a hard question to, to answer. And for me, I see class as a special instance of uh, the new kinds of ways that people are able to make communities when they're organizing themselves in these translocal organizations uh, that are knit together with newspapers and new kinds of information networks. So here the important point is that these new organizations create regional and national constituencies through these new kinds of media. So that, that sounds really academic. So imagine this. Uh, let's take the Anti-Corn Law League. All of the members of the Anti-Corn Law League would not only uh, think of themselves as members of the Anti-Corn Law League because they paid a fee. They thought of themselves as members of the Anti-Corn Law League because they got a membership card, which they'd carry around with them. They'd go to local meetings at which they'd drink and meet other like-minded members. They would read the, National, uh, the Anti-Corn Law League's publications and learn about current events. They would learn through that information that would teach them the values of free trade and bring up to their minds the problems that were resulting from a lack of free trade. And this made them think of themselves as a unified bloc and made them bring to the public table a bunch of new kinds of problems. And it's this process that creates a sense of shared identity. It's not along the lines of socioeconomic uh, relations. It's not simply that automatically all factory workers suddenly get class consciousness and know that they're factory workers. It's along the lines of information and social networks. It's who people are hanging out with, what sort of newspapers they're reading, how they can imagine themselves as being part of a wider community. We could even extend this and talk about the 19th century creation of imperial identities as a even larger uh, moment of this. Imperial identities, in my view, are uh, hopped on the back of the telegraph, the, the undersea telegraph cables that spread news of the British Empire to all of the different imperial zones. So for me, class declines in the 1840s because there's less need for these kinds of civil society organizations to make claims about politics because the standard of living is rising and there are other focuses of civil concern. In the 1840s, 
uh, a lot of these civil society organizations are looking themselves to reform working class life, let's say from below. Uh, these are things like working man's associations that seek to educate people. Uh, there are things like the temperance movement, which seeks to uh, reform working class life by making sure that people don't drink. These are the ways that these civil society organizations are trying to organize themselves. Class comes back in the 70s and 80s for me because you have new kinds of problems. Uh, you get the cotton famine in 1865, where uh, lots and lots and lots of people in Lancashire are unemployed. Massive unemployment due to the end of the cotton trade during the American Civil War. And this is troubling because it shows people that you can't just lift yourself up by the bootstraps like the uh, 1840s and 50s model of uh, a working man's improvement was. You can't simply just tell people how to work and then expect them to work. There were structural causes of unemployment. Not everybody who was laid off in the cotton famine were deserving of being laid off. And then in the 1870s, you get the Depression, and the Depression puts further pressure on actual people's daily lives, and they want to explain why that happens. And now they can explain why that happens through looking at these new information networks that picture them as merely elements in a much larger imperial machine of commerce and industry. And from this perspective, a number of groups see themselves as being able to change things. Key here are uh, the dock workers and the coal miners who identify themselves as having privileged places in the capitalist system. And they realize that they can put their foot in the door of capitalism through strikes. And it's this new kind of consciousness through new information. It's this new strategy of sabotage and strike that allows the uh, 1880s creation of class consciousness. It's because people who are working um, at the heart of capitalism, at the coal pit and at the dock, are able to stop the flow of capitalism and get everybody's attention. So let's now talk about these technologies on a more granular level, because you've probably been asking, Brendan, these are not technologies, these are, you know, or organizational forms. And I go, okay, well, I want, I want to call them technologies because I think calling them technologies allows us to see them as something that changes and whose changes are very important. So let's talk about how daily life and business change during this time. And from this, we can see how the reduction in costs of information forced people to work in different ways and allowed people to view their organizations anew. Let's look at this through mail, because mail is the beating heart of a business. Mail is how information comes in and goes out. Before 1830s, 1840s, mail was not really that important. Uh, people would make internal communication face-to-face. -face. Uh, they'd only send mail internally if it was to a distant uh, uh, department. And they only brought things into writing when there were problems, like they needed to uh, make an accounting audit uh, in order to ferret out some embezzlement or something. And so people copied their own letters uh, when they sent them. 
everybody needed to make two copies of every letter so that they'd have a record of what they sent. And when letters came in, um, they would uh, be filed away in drawers, just willy-nilly. However, after the 1840s, uh, with the expansion of the rail network, the price of information decreased. And we know uh, that when prices of, of things like that decrease, what happens is that people use a lot more of it. You, we can think of it as like the highway effect. Uh, urban planners know that when you build new highways, it doesn't actually reduce congestion, it just leads to more people driving. So as you reduce the price of communication, it didn't lead to people you know, spending less on communication, it meant that people communicated more. And so after 1840s, people had to manage their internal communication in different ways. Uh, you got a new kind of uh, event where people would write letters to each other in the same company uh, so that there would be paper trails, so that these uh, 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 communications would be legible to the outside. Uh, because of the rise of communication, because of the rise of the number of letters that people sent, instead of getting clerks whose job it was to copy letters, there was the development of the hand press, uh, where people would write their letters on special uh, uh, paper with special ink that would then be pressed in a copying machine so that they would have multiple copies uh, so that they wouldn't have to actually get somebody to copy it down by hand. The pigeonhole desk, uh, where people would you know, fold their correspondence and put it into a pigeonhole to save for later, instead moved on to much more systematic forms of filing, like flat filing systems and filing cabinets and vertical files that allowed people to quickly look through lots and lots of information all at once. Um, another development is the development of the typewriter in the 1870s and 1880s. But more interesting for us is the development of the internal report. This is interesting because it's a way of sending information up it's a way of hierarchical communication within the organization itself. You're not simply sending written communication because the person you're talking to is far away. You're actually using written communication as a means of creating information about the company and thus of uh, saying what you should do about it. Um, so to make this happen, people started to do internal surveys of uh, their businesses. It started with the railroads, with people filling out forms about uh, how many people came on the railroads, when there were uh, you know, busy times, and so on. But then this started to spread throughout many different kinds of organizations, and you got a, a regularity of printed forms that would have tick boxes on them that would generate quantitative data about the business activity itself. And to present this, we got the rise of the data visualization, the chart, the graph. These allowed uh, people who were reading these new kinds of, of, of information to read them really quickly, to look at them at a glance. And so information about the business became combinable. It became transportable. It became uh, stable over time. You could get these things and give them to people, and they would understand the business much easier. And this also applied to government as well. We can think of government as going through three different periods of professionalization. Between 1815 and 1832, uh, government was prepared to act only on a very small 
number of cases. It was prepared to act against agricultural distress. Uh, that's why you got the Corn Law. It was you know, attempting to deal with problems of overpopulation, crime, and city life, but it wasn't particularly activist. After about 1830 to 1870, you start to get new kinds of experts on the scene who generate new kinds of knowledge about the social problems that they see. You get scientists, social scientists, utilitarians, all trying to, you know, make information so that people get pushed to reform stuff. Uh, scientists get called to testify, say, on issues of public safety, like disposing refuse and dead bodies and the purity of air and water and food and how to improve working conditions and all of that. And because of that, you start to get these scientists and experts becoming generators of information about what social problems are. You get the General Records Office generating data and statistics about the actual composition of the nation and sending that out actively to localities and priests and other people of authority to get them to do stuff. The idea still, I want to emphasize, is that the central government reveals the problems and sets standards, and then local governments and civil societies are the ones who are expected to do something about it. After the 1870s, though, this starts to shift. Uh, pressure from the Depression, um, pressure from new political claims because of the expanded electorate, and greater understanding of systemic societal problems leads there to be uh, and more claims made on government action itself, the central federal government. So the this parliamentary authority starts to be handed off to officials and experts who are given statutory powers to actually uphold laws. So instead of simply getting a person like Edwin Chadwick getting a bunch of information about uh, the health of towns and then trying to encourage local authorities to work, now you have an inspectorate whose job it is is to make sure that localities are actually abiding by the rules. Instead of merely suggesting that localities, say, make a police force, now localities have to make a police force, and these police forces generate information about what they do so that they can be overseen by experts, by central authorities, by civil servants. And so through this, you have a growth in statute law that suggests uniform treatment for all people. You have uh, the establishment of responsible staff who, who actually have to carry out this law. Um, the idea was that this would actually be using government smarter, not harder, that it would end up reducing the costs of government, not raising it, that by having all these civil servants, you could do things for cheap. And through that, you can see the big theme of this episode, that the collection, acquisition, uh, possession, and dissemination of knowledge becomes a new kind of authority. It makes new kinds of problems. It creates new kinds of groupings. Thanks very much for listening today to Making of a Historian. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Send me good vibes for my exam in a week. Uh, ask me a question at, at Mackie Teacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. Thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. I'll be back tomorrow with more stuff on the 19th century. 